and welcome to Teach With Your Hands, the podcast where we bring you the confidence, connections, and business understanding you need to teach the crafts you love. I'm Amy Costello. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. My guest today has a PhD in philosophy and he spent some years teaching at various universities before he changed gears and became an editor at Fine Woodworking Magazine. He's the author of 52 Boxes in 52 Weeks, was a regular host on Fine Woodworking's Shop Talk Live podcast, and since leaving the magazine has started his own podcast called the Matt and Joe Woodworking Fun Hour. Currently, he's a full-time woodworker, author, and teacher offering woodworking classes around the globe. Matt Kenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Amy. So let's start by hearing a little bit more about how you got started woodworking and some of the teachers who've had the most influence on your life, woodworking or otherwise. I really got into woodworking proper when I was a grad student. Then when I was teaching, I had a a young woman in two of my classes. And in the second class, she said, hey, you talk a lot about woodworking in class as metaphors. Is that something you like to do? And I was like, yeah, I do. I love it. And she said, well, my dad's a professional furniture maker, but he thinks he's a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to meet him? And I was like, sure. So I went out and met Joe and Joe, you know, invited me into a shop. And over about two and a half years, he taught me the real meat of woodworking, of furniture making rather. And he also taught me about giving selflessly to another person because Joe never really asked for anything in return from me. So it taught me now it makes me much more, I I don't know how to say patient with people, especially people that I don't know who ask me questions. You know, I get a lot of, I get a lot of questions through Instagram, through my email on my company website and you know, 99% of the people I don't know at all. And having been with Joe for that long and him giving so much of himself to me, it makes it easier for me to give myself over to people and teach them. And I had philosophy professors along the way that were really instrumental. You know, the, you know, there were these two guys, Jim Peters and Jim Peterman at Swanee, their passion for philosophy and their passion for helping me understand philosophy is what really ignited my desire to be a teacher myself because philosophy made such a huge difference in my life that I wanted to do for at least one other person what they had done for me and what philosophy had done for me. So when I took my first philosophy class, I knew right away that I wanted to teach. And initially that was teaching philosophy. So was teaching philosophy your first experience with teaching? Yeah, I guess so. You know, I taught when I was a grad student and that was sort of my first real intro to teaching. Although actually now that you mentioned, I remember when I was a undergraduate student, as my work study, I was helping Jim Peters grade papers and stuff. And he had to miss like two days of class for some reason. And he asked me to fill in for him. So, <laughs> <laughs> but really it wasn't until I was a grad student. And then I started teaching classes on my own, taught, you know, contemporary moral issues, intro to philosophy. I taught a lot of logic. That was my first real taste of teaching, working with people who were not much younger than I was interacting with them and trying to learn how to communicate my knowledge in a way that wasn't jerky, you know, (laughs) how to communicate my authority without being a jerk. Yeah. And, and also how to, most importantly, to 
communicate my passion for philosophy in the hopes of instilling that passion or awakening that passion in at least one or two students each semester. You know? Yeah. So did that experience teaching philosophy, does that inform how you teach woodworking now? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, because teaching philosophy, doing that helped me learn how to take what can be very complex information and sort of distill it down to the most important points and then communicate that to the students in a way that is easy for them to understand and easy to do and hopefully more easily consumed by the student than it was for you to initially acquire it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the ideal. Yeah. So I imagine that working at Fine Woodworking, you were doing that as an editor where you took somebody else's knowledge and had to distill it into seven pages and however many photographs. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being an editor at Fine Woodworking is, it was a job in which I was teaching behind the scenes, so to speak. And, you know, unless I was writing the article myself, but it was helping someone else present their knowledge in a clear, concise, and understandable fashion. Right. So if I wanted to, or one of my listeners wanted to put their ideas into writing to teach somebody else, are there any uh, maybe common mistakes, I guess, that you saw new writers make? Things that you would have to fix regularly for a manuscript to turn it into a finished product? Well, I, I don't know if fine woodworking is the best place to ask that question. Okay. Because the authors, and this is not intended as a slight, but they're not, they're woodworkers, they're not writers. Right. So there is a lot of assistance with the writing. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the more important advice I could give to someone who wants to start to teach. There really is, I mean, I believe this with a passion that there is an onus upon the instructor to genuinely be an expert in what they are teaching. There are a lot of things that I do, say, for example, in woodworking that I would not want to teach because I'm not an expert at those. And there are things that I am an expert in, I, I guess, uh, you know, like box making, yeah. that I am comfortable teaching. And I think the reason why that's so important is that, like I said earlier, you want to present information in a way that a student can more readily pick it up, right? You want to make the craft enticing to people. You want to make the craft something that's easier to learn. And the, really the only way you can do that is if you have taken the time to practice, to analyze the techniques, analyze the process of building furniture, you have to then be able to communicate that clearly. And you really can't do that until you understand it that well. Right. So, you know, the more experience you have in woodworking of trying different techniques, like, you know, you've cut dovetails one way. You can't, I mean, really you should cut dovetails a lot of ways because what that'll do is help you better understand the essential points of dovetailing. Right. The ones that carry across all the different techniques. Yeah. When you understand that, then you can really do dovetails no matter the tool. And then, you, then you're ready to start teaching. How do you know? It's not like you wake up one morning and say, I know enough now, right? 
-hmm. learning is this gradual process. So how do you tell if you know enough? Right. People start asking you to be on podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, I mean, that's a really good question. And in some ways, you just have to test the waters. You know, whether it's you sit down and try to write out how to cut dovetails and, you know, are you able to do that? If you can't explain how to cut dovetails to say your spouse or your neighbor and have them understand it, then you're not ready to teach dovetailing because a lot of the people that I teach are people who are new to the craft. Right. And they don't have a background of knowledge that you can sort of rely on, like take for granted. Yeah. So you should be able to explain the technique, let's say it's a technique, the technique to someone who's never really done it before and have them understand it. And that means that you understand it. Yeah. Then you'd be ready to start teaching. But, you know, I'm not trying to dissuade people from testing the waters. I, I just want to emphasize the importance of making sure that you're passing along good information. All right. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the, and the way that you acquire good information in woodworking is through lots and lots and lots of practice. Right. You know, so you got to really build a lot and that then you really understand how furniture is made and you understand joinery and all that stuff. And, you know, then you can start teaching it. But, you know, at the same time, enthusiasm is a great thing. And if you have a lot of enthusiasm and passion, you can certainly teach the things that you do know. It probably makes me sound kind of like a jerk, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a result of the way I came into teaching, which was through earning a PhD. Yeah. They're not really going to hire you to be a professor at a university until you've proven that you have a mastery of the information that you'll be teaching. So the way I proved that I had a mastery of Greek philosophy was, you know, I went to grad school, I wrote a dissertation on Plato, I defended that dissertation to a bunch of professors, and they all said, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing, he can now go out and teach it. And it's obviously not that way with woodworking, but that's sort of where I get that idea that you really have to work hard to earn the knowledge that makes it possible for you to teach. All right. So now tell me about your first teaching gig and how that went. How, how far along were you on your woodworking journey when you taught your first class? Man, you know, actually, well, I don't know if it's my first class, but it was in my first year at Fine Woodworking, I made a video workshop, which was a series of episodes in which I showed how to build a workbench. Okay. And it was my workbench. They call it Matt's Monster Workbench. I did not come up with that name. (laughs) (laughs) But that was probably, I guess that was my first real teaching experience in woodworking. I had enough experience already teaching to know that, and this is the way things are done at the magazine anyways. It's like before you yell action, everyone sat down and thought about, okay, what are we going to be doing? (laughs) You know? So we had a plan for what we were going to cover in each episode and And I had already run through my head. So I'm going to talk about cutting a mortise. And this is what I'm going to say about cutting a mortise. And this is what's important about cutting a mortise. So I think for me, that first experience was not as 
bad as it could have been because I'd already taught college for roughly 10 years. Yeah. So it was, I was much more comfortable doing that than maybe someone else who's never taught before at all would be. So I sort of had that background to, to pull on, but it was really fun. I was at the point where I could teach, you know, how to make a workbench because I had made workbenches. Yeah. Should I be teaching like a fundamentals of woodworking class at that point? No. But I did progress through my teaching in that way. It was like, okay, well, here's something else that I've done a lot. So now I can start to teach that. And here's something that I use a lot. So let me write an article about that. It's, you know, just like the old writing mantra, write what you know, it's teach what you know, you know, and what you have a passion for. So how long was it before you taught an in-person class with woodworking students right there in the room with you? You know, I'm not really sure how long it was after, but it would probably been a couple of years. I think maybe the second video workshop I did at the magazine was like box making. It was after that that I taught one or two box making classes at a little school in Norwalk, Connecticut. That was, it was kind of nerve wracking, you know, because I'd never taught woodworking before. My understanding of woodworking at that point was not as, as full as it is now. There, it was very much a matter of, this is precisely what we're going to do. Yeah. Because this is what I know to do. It was more sort of a rigid class because I, I wanted to keep things on track. And in a realm where you could answer the questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, when I teach, I'll answer any questions that students have about woodworking. And if I don't know the answer, I just tell them I don't know, but you can go read this. But those classes were a bit nerve wracking, you know, because it was also the first time that I was teaching a class in which someone could be seriously maimed. Yeah. You know? (laughs) I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole nother level that's added on to teaching woodworking. That's not say when you're teaching philosophy or logic. Yeah. And that's why it's so important that you really understand what's involved with using machinery or tools before you start teaching, because the last thing you want to have happen is someone get seriously hurt or hurt at all because of something you suggested that they should do or told them that they should do. And when you're teaching in person, where you not only are trying to keep track of the direction the class is moving in, sense of, did we get this step done? Did we get that step done? At the same time you're doing all of that, you're also having to observe all of the students and make sure that no one gets hurt. Yeah. (laughs) Which that's actually the more important responsibility. You don't want anyone to get hurt in your class. And so your focus is on at least two things, if not other things as well. Sometimes you have, you know, people with personality uh, issues, you know, (laughs) and so you're trying to manage personalities and keep the class moving. And definitely the, the fact that someone could be injured because of something you told them they should do is a huge part of teaching woodworking for me. I take that very seriously. I've started to do YouTube videos and I'm really nervous about that because, you know, I would feel horrible if someone got hurt doing a technique that I suggested they should do. Yeah. You've kind of got less backup on those YouTube videos because it's all coming out of your head. You don't have the team to support the 
thought process as much. Right. Yeah. It's, I can't just, uh, uh, you know, jog over to Mike Pekovich's cubicle and say, Hey, Mike, what do you think about this? And, you know, so yeah, it's definitely me having to edit, so to speak, all of the content that's being put out there and I'm responsible for it. And that's a huge responsibility. So have you ever had somebody get hurt in a class? Thankfully, no. Yeah, not seriously, but it takes a lot of vigilance. You know, you have to watch closely. So how did you get that first gig? Did that school approach you? Did you approach them? So Norwalk is not too far from Newtown, where Fine Woodworking is located. I think the guy that owned that school might have called Fine Woodworking and asked if there was anyone there that could teach classes. You know, now teaching gigs come through, uh, I'm either approached by somewhere to come teach, or after I left the magazine last summer, I just kind of called a few places and said, hey, my schedule is free now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How would you like me to come teach? And, you know, fortunately, I was in a position where that was possible. Cool. So I get that you think that the safety aspect is maybe the most important part of teaching a class, but what's the most difficult? The safety. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I, I don't know. It, it's, it depends on probably where you're teaching. Some places I teach, it's, you know, almost all my students are brand new and they don't really know how to use a table saw. So that's really challenging. But probably the most challenging thing about teaching woodworking really is that students often show up with tools that are not sharp. And you just can't woodwork with tools that aren't sharp. And so it kind of throws a monkey wrench into the whole process. So the longer I teach, the more I start to think about, okay, well, how can we do this? And I don't need to have the students come in with sharp chisels. What you're doing is what I should be doing, which is teaching to their skill levels and to their knowledge levels and not presupposing that they know how to do things that they don't know how to do. So that's a huge challenge is, is sharpening. And so I do, when I can, I spend like the first morning of a class teaching students about sharpening because it's the most important skill in woodworking. Is there one skill that students have trouble with more than any other one? No, I don't think so. The thing that can impede you the most in woodworking is lacking hand-eye coordination and dexterity. And so that's something that's really challenging is if, especially the stuff that I do, small boxes and Kumiko, it takes a lot of finesse and the patience for finesse, the ability to adjust a stop on a pairing jig in Kumiko, just a scintilla of a, you know, (laughs) so that is really challenging. So is there anything you can do to help students with that in the space of a class? Or is it just a matter of this is where you're going to be for this weekend and you're going to have to practice for 10 years to be able to do this? No, there's definitely things like in a Kumiko class, I always, one of the first things we do before we really start making Kumiko is I show students how to hold a chisel. I explain to them why it's important to hold the chisel that way and how it gives you more control over your cuts and over the chisel itself so it doesn't shoot off and jab their neighbor, yeah. right? So, <laughs> so there, there are technique things that you can show students that will enable them to work with greater finesse and greater precision. You know, if it's at a table saw, you can talk about stop blocks 
and, and then they do like in a Kumiko class where they might have to cut 64 identical parts. That's a lot of repetition in a short period of time. So yeah, you just help them when you see them using bad technique, you show them good technique. And it like say in a Kumiko class, if they have a dull chisel, you make sure they have a sharp chisel because a sharp chisel makes it far easier to work with precision and finesse. All right. So cool. Yeah. I know you haven't been at this super long, but do you have any, I guess, practical tips on how to make a living at teaching? I know it's not your whole income, but maybe how to either make a living at it or how to do it in a way that it'll supplement your income significantly. Yeah. You know, I, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you just have to do it for, you know, become a master at it first. And that's the answer. Yeah. It's like, if, you know, if you want to teach a lot in 2019, I'm going to teach a lot. And I think to get to the point where you can teach a lot, you have to be a recognized expert in the field. You know, one of the ways to do that is to be in fine woodworking. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> you mean as a contributor or as an editor? Because I know that's helped you a lot. Well, as an author. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like, like Michael Fortune or Garrett Hack or Chris Bexford. I do know that folks who are in fine woodworking as authors can get maybe paid more and can get a teaching job perhaps more easily because they're going to be recognized more readily because Fine Woodworking is the magazine that the craft turns to for information. So if you're good enough to be in Fine Woodworking, I guess the thinking is, is that you're good enough to teach. Right. You know, teaching to make a living exclusively, you would have to be a full-time instructor somewhere. There's community colleges around the country. There's one in Salt Lake City, right? That's where Chris Gochner teaches. And then there are schools like Center for Furniture Craftsmanship in Maine or the Crinov School in California, North Bennett Street. Those jobs are far more difficult to get. The other option would be like to try to teach classes out of your own shop. And some people do that. But it is, it is a challenge to get to the point where you can teach a lot and get paid well to do it. You, you have to earn that, you know. Uh, because schools have a lot at risk. It's that they need to make money. And the way that one of the ways they make money is by having instructors that people want to take classes from. Yeah, celebrity instructors almost. Yeah, it sort of is that way, you know. But they're also at risk in that if they bring in someone who does a bad job, then they're going to have a harder time getting those students back to their school. Yeah. And if they have someone come in and a student gets hurt, well, that's just a disaster. Yeah. (laughs) So like with anything in life, and this has been my experience, is that if you want to get good at it, you have to do it over and over and over and over and over again. It's just like, you know, if you want to be a professional basketball player, but there's no shortcut. Yeah. You have to, you have to play basketball a lot. Right. And really for, you know, for 20 years or something, you know, for a long time, mm-hmm. woodworking is a little bit better than that. I mean, I've been woodworking for about 18 years, almost 20 years, actually. So, you know, I, I put my time in, in the shop and I took it seriously and I'm passionate about it and I worked really hard at it. And I was fortunate to end up at fine woodworking and that gave me a platform through which I became, you know, known as a woodworker. 
But there were other people who didn't have that opportunity that became well-known woodworkers and are able to teach around the country and around the world, you know? Yeah. And that's because they worked hard and they put themselves out there. They offered up their knowledge and if they got rejected, they kept trying. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your new podcast, the Matt okay. and Joe Woodworking Fun Hour, because that's an instructional podcast for sure too. Right. And I, I know you're doing that kind of dual, you have the audio half and the video half. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about that format and why you chose it and what you're hoping to do with the podcast? Well, so woodworking is a very visual thing, right? Yeah. Like it's something you want to see happening. Yeah. And I wanted to do video anyways. So let me step back for a minute. What makes it possible to do video that goes along with the podcast is that the format of the podcast is really different, I think, than most podcasts where, you know, when I was on Shop Talk Live, we would answer maybe four to six questions an episode, but they could be about anything. The new podcast is that my co-host, Joe, is sort of a, a novice woodworker. And he asked me if I would teach him. He said, we should do a podcast where you teach me how to do woodworking. And I like that idea in part because his name is Joe and the guy that taught me is named Joe. Yeah. yeah. Full circle. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of giving back to someone the way that Joe gave back to me. And this Joe, Joe Ferroni, he had the gumption to ask. So, and he lives close by, so it makes it easy. The idea is that with each episode, we address a particular topic for the entire episode. So the first one that we did was sharpening. That made it easy then to say, okay, well, what, what kind of video would we do to go along with that? Well, let's do a video about sharpening. And so that's what we did. You know, so now what it's sort of morphed into is that Joe and I are each going to design and make a tea cabinet. That's the, sort of the first thing we're going to do. And, and through doing that, we're going to walk through pretty much every part of woodworking. It should be reasonable to do a video that goes along with each podcast. And it's not that the video is going to be just a direct word-for-word reproduction. It's not going to be. It's going to be more technique-driven. Say when we get around to talk about making and fitting drawers, you know, the video will be sort of a, a, you know, an in-depth discussion and demonstration of making a drawer and fitting it. The idea behind it for me was that, I mean, there's people, some people who probably learn by listening. I think learning woodworking by listening to a podcast is extremely difficult. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to provide something else that would help people learn and that would reinforce what was said during the podcast. So, you know, the podcast, which is hopefully entertaining and informative you know, you have that, but then when you're done, you can go to YouTube and watch a video that will present the information in a more concentrated and direct fashion. And it's also something that I think is more easy to go back to and consume at a later date than listening to a podcast again. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the, the truth is when young people like yourself, when they want to learn something, probably the first thing they do is go to YouTube. Oh, heck yeah. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to reach young people, which we need to do that in woodworking, you need to avail yourself of YouTube. And I, you know, I don't know, there already are a lot of people on YouTube presenting information, woodworking information. 
I think that what I'll present to people will be different enough and I'll be coming from a different perspective on woodworking that it should hopefully prove interesting enough to people or interesting to enough people that it's something that will be reasonable for me to do for a long period of time. All right. Yeah. So you're going to eventually finish your tea cabinets that you're working on right now. Are you planning on building different and bigger things after that? Or is this like a book where there's chapters and a planned ending? Well, there's not a planned ending because we could certainly build other things and just building this tea cabinet. We're not going to cover all the technique you could, you yeah. know, cause I doubt there'll be say, for example, any mortise and tenon joinery. Yeah. So, <laughs> But also the podcast, one of the things that I, which we sort of done already, we just had an episode where we talked to Phil Morley from Texas, who's no longer an illegal immigrant. By the way. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> He's now him. a naturalized citizen. Um, <laughs> we talked to him about design. Phil's a great designer. So Phil and I talked about design. And so I also have plans for the podcast that, you know, when Joe may not be on it, it may just be me. And I go visit all these people I know that make furniture all over the country. And uh, so there will be other parts of the podcast, which what I hope to do is bring in different perspectives on making furniture. So one thing that I really have appreciated about your podcast so far is that you've included a section on design. Yes. I know that the debate on whether design skills can be taught or not is age old, but I like that you've essentially said not only can design be taught, but I'm going to do it. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I think design can be taught because I'm not a natural designer, I don't think. And whether or not I design well is open to debate, I think, you know, I don't want to act like I'm some kind of brilliant designer, but I hold my own. I learned really how to design by designing, you know, by designing something and making it, designing something else and making it. So I definitely believe that design is something you can teach because there are principles to good design, you know, and if you're making full like furniture, like couches and chairs and tables, I mean, there's just a whole list of things about the nature of the human body average dimensions of parts of the human body that inform the design of those pieces of furniture. So you can learn just that. And that puts you sort of a leg up on designing a chair, for example, if you know that the best angles at which to have a dining chair are this angle, you know, for the seat in the back, whereas a lounge chair would be something slightly different. And you can also teach people about good proportions. And you can teach people about structural things that go into design. If someone is willing to put in the effort to design things and make them and then design them and make them, they should be able to learn from their mistakes and learn from their successes and learn to become a better designer. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to end up making beautiful furniture. Okay. But I do think it means that everyone can end up making well-designed and functional furniture. But I do think there is some little bit of a natural affinity for it. I think what that is, and I've tried, I talked to Joe about this on my podcast, is that 
he kind of asked me, well, where did you get your sense of design from? I don't want to sound again, like, you know, someone who's full of himself, but I think that my work has an identifiable style to it, Yeah. right? That you could, you could look at something I made and say, okay, well, that looks like something Matt Kinney made. Where that came from, I believe, is that there are things that in a sense fascinate me in the world. And I thought about what it is that I look at or think about or how I look at the world, what fascinates me in the world. And I started to bring those things into the furniture and boxes that I make. And through that process, I was able to develop a style that reflects the unique way in which I see and interact with the world. It takes practice to do that. And it maybe is something that can't be taught. I don't know. But I do think that if you practice that, you can start to recognize, oh, this is what I find interesting in the world. How do I translate that into a piece of furniture? But I'm not 100% convinced that that can be, but I think it can. You know, I, I, yeah. you know, I tell people to do that. I don't know if anyone's actually done that yet. Right. Do you think that sense is the same thing as like taste? Having good taste versus having bad taste? Yeah. Especially since, you know, whether something is beautiful or not is so subjective. Right. So this actually reminds me of what I would say to students in philosophy classes. I would say to them that there are a lot of answers that are correct answers, but there are also some that are demonstrably wrong. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when it comes to taste, there are lots of things that could be described as beautiful. Yeah. But there are also some that are demonstrably not beautiful. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that it's those principles where you can clearly point out why it's not beautiful that makes it demonstrably so? I mean, I guess that's the definition of demonstrably. Yeah, like you can say, look, the proportions on this thing are really bad. Yeah. And this tabletop is too thick for the legs. And so it looks top heavy and spindly and that's not pleasing to the eye so yeah you could go through and point out all those things and on, in the same way you could go through and point out why something is beautiful it's like you know look this has really nice overall proportions the parts are well proportioned in relation to each other the grain selection is harmonious with the shape of the parts so you could go through and, and point out all those things and show someone that you know there is a reason why this is beautiful the thing is that those the reasons why something is beautiful they're somewhat abstract yeah so they can be interpreted or they can be embodied in a lot of different ways yeah so this is also in some ways maybe is what's underlying why people believe in moral relativism because particular instances vary doesn't mean that the underlying principles that make them beautiful or make them morally acceptable are incompatible. Yeah. You know, that it could be the same principles informing all of those things. And that explains why, you know, arts and crafts is beautiful, but so is Shaker furniture. And so is Danish modern, you know, these are very different styles, but what it is about them that makes them beautiful, they have in common, you know, the underlying principles. So it sounds like, I'll repeat this back to you, you think that it's 
definitely possible to teach students to recognize beautiful and recognize what good design is, but it might be a lot more difficult to get them to produce it. Yes. In the sense of taking what is attractive to them in the world and creating something that's new and unique and, you know, turning that idea into the physical thing is what's the hard part. Once they have a physical thing, it's easy to say, this is what needs to be fixed. But maybe getting that first step is the I, I think part. so, yeah. Woodworking is not unique in that way. It's, in, in one way, it's, it's you have to learn to listen for your voice and you have to learn to hear your voice. And then you have to learn how to translate your voice, right, into this medium, you know, wood, this natural medium. And so there's a lot that's involved in identifying, listening to, understanding, and then translating your design voice. Some people are going to do that more quickly than others. But I do think it's something that everyone can do eventually. Like anything else, if you really want to excel at something, you almost have to be fanatical about it. You have to be obsessive about it because you have to put so much time into it. Even if you have natural ability, you still have to put a ton of time and practice in to excel at it. Your book, 52 Boxes in 52 Weeks, is a lot about your journey through, I guess, teaching yourself how to become a better designer. Can you tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that journey and that book? Yeah, so that book is exactly what that was. It was me trying to become a better designer through the only way I know to become better at something, which is by practicing it. And so I thought, okay, well, what's something that I could do that would enable me to design a lot and not just design, but execute the design? I think that's important. You can't just practice design by drawing sketches. Just like you you can't just practice baseball all the time. Eventually you got to play games. Yeah. You, gotta, you have to get out and execute in the field of competition. And that's sort of what the shop is. I love to make boxes anyways, but I, you know it struck me that well making boxes is something I could make a box a week. I could design and make a box every week because they're not very big. I don't know. I don't honestly I don't remember how I settled on 52 in a year, but I just thought if I did this for a long period of time, it would provide me with a good foundation for writing a book about boxes. I didn't think it was going to be the book that I wrote. I thought it was going to be more of an instructional book, but I just saw it as an opportunity to not only improve my technique, but also to improve as a designer. Because I kind of was like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what to do next. So it was like, okay, well, if you want to figure out what to do next, you've got to start designing and designing and designing. How have people responded to that book? Have people told you that they have become better designers because of something they found in that book? Yes. A couple of people probably directly. A lot of people have, I've seen, uh, like e I get emails, I guess that's direct too. So yeah, I, I have been told that. I've been told, you know, people say, hey, it makes me now understand the importance of grain selection and parts or the importance of proportions and, you know, things like that. So, but there are also a, a couple of reviews that say it's the worst book ever about boxes because <laughs> there's no uh, detailed plans on how to make things. So, yeah, which is the opposite of the point of that book. Right. It's, yeah, it's, the book's not about that at all. So, but yeah, it's been received very well. I'm happy that it has been. You know, I think they're on the third printing now, and that's in less than a year, which, you know, is surprising to me, but it's, it's pretty awesome. 
and it's a really good feeling to know that I've contributed something to the craft that at least some people think is valuable, you know? Yeah. You know, when I decided to become a philosophy professor, it was because I wanted to eventually do for one student what was done for me. And one of the things I like about what I do now, as opposed to when I was teaching, is that what I do now reaches far more people. It has a far greater impact on people. I think that for me, the most satisfying thing about the book is that it has done for a great many people what box making and designing, you know, what I get, get out of it, the passion that I have for it. I was able to successfully communicate that through the book and through the project and other people feel inspired by it. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Awesome. Well, I think we are getting to the end of our hour. So why don't you tell me where people can learn from you? Yeah. So if you want to take a class from me, you should go to my website, which is mekwoodworks.com. My teaching schedule is there. You can also follow my Instagram account, which is mekwoodworks. That's the best place to keep track of what I'm doing. You can also listen to the Matt and Joe Woodworking Fun Hour, which is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify right now, and also at woodworkingfunhour.com. Oh, my YouTube channel, which is if you go to YouTube and search Matt Kinney Woodworking, or Matt Kinney Channel in particular, it should be one of the first results that comes up. Cool. Well, thank you for talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me on. If you like this episode, you can visit us on iTunes and give us a rating. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at TWYH Podcast. Teach With Your Hands is produced by Amy Costello. The music is Admin by Poddington Bear. Hear more at soundofpicture.com. Yeah.